Welcome to another episode of Jess's Sobriety, where we talk, share, and spill the tea soberly and and anonymously. I swear I know how to say anonymously. Apparently not today, though. Okay, so (laughs) I usually don't mess up that quickly, but thanks for bearing with me anyway. So anyways, today we're going to read Substance Abuse Counseling, Chapter 1. And it is by Judith A. Lewis, Robert Q. Dana, and Gregory A. Blevins. It's the sixth edition. And yeah, we're just going to be learning today. I'm not really going to talk about anything. We're just going to be learning and reading from the book. So if this isn't something you're into, the next episode will be normal. But this is going to help me focus in my studying. So... It'll help me focus and it'll teach us all something. So I'm going to get started and hopefully this time around I don't have any interruptions with phone calls. We'll see because I already had to restart once. So (laughs) substance abuse counseling for today. The last few years brought fundamental changes to the practice of substance abuse counseling. Although some pockets of traditional practice remain, a paradigm shift has left the 20th century models far behind. When we look back, we may find it difficult to believe that not long ago the American conventional wisdom about substance abuse was built more on mythology than on science. The myth at the center of the past practice involved the notion that the clients dealing with substance abuse issues were different from other human beings and could not enter the collaborative relationships that counselors normally like to build with their clients. Many members of the community of helping professionals actually joined with the general public in believing that successful interventions required aggressive confrontation and prescriptive treatment plans. In contrast, current substance abuse counselors know that a collaborative and respectful approach is not just humane but also effective. They are aware that the most successful interventions are the ones best fit for the client's current situations and concerns. They view their clients with a context that includes family, community, and even national policy. They are committed to the process of closing the gap between research and practice and believe that a scientific approach to substance abuse problems trumps an approach guided by opinion and personal belief. The quest for advancement in substance abuse counseling practice is not just an intellectual exercise. It is a path to real improvement in real people's lives. Look at the following examples and then consider what kind of help might best meet the needs of human beings who are in pain. Marvin was caught selling a small amount of cocaine and served some time in prison. After his release, he was determined to put that part of his life behind him. Now, however, he's back at home and has begun to lose hope. His family, his friends, and the people he knows in the neighborhood all seem to be involved in drug use. A problematic economy makes it seem almost impossible for him to find employment. He says he can't find a way out. Last week, Kathy's drug and alcohol abuse created a medical crisis that brought her to the hospital emergency department. She had tried to withdraw from a drug a number of times over the last few years, but every time she sought help, her life partner, Roy, threatened to leave her. 
She knows she should choose recovery, but this relationship still comes first. Robert is a ninth grade student who has been a victim of constant bullying and a teacher, the only adult whose help he sought, suggested that he try to act more masculine in order to avoid this problem. Although other students in Robert's grade were experiencing similar problems, they all tended to avoid one another rather than take the chance of being seen together. The only group that would affect, accept Robert turned out to be focused on alcohol use, and Robert felt it was worth it to move into that direction himself. Nine-year-old Melissa has always seemed to be a bright, outgoing, and well-adjusted child. Lately, she has come to school more exhausted every day, falling asleep at times when she would normally have been actively engaged. Melissa insists that nothing is wrong, but the reality is that her father has returned to binge drinking after years in recovery. Though her mother's attention has been focused on this crisis, Melissa has been shouldering much of the responsibility for taking care of her two preschool siblings. Marianne is very serious about her career in sales. She is aware of the glass ceiling that has kept a woman from progressing very far in her company, so she does everything she can do to fit in. She goes to the bar with her colleagues when they invite her, and she dines with clients when she can. She uh, recently has had some warnings at the office that her drinking is getting out of hand. She's worried that she's suddenly carrying off her desired career path. Eduardo's mental health counselor has referred him to a highly regarded methadone program in the neighborhood because of his newly developed heroin habit. The fact that Eduardo is undocumented immigrant has never blocked him from receiving counseling skills, but the methadone program requires proof of legal residency. Eduardo needs help but cannot receive it, even though his counselor has learned that there is no state law that requires this documentation. These situations illustrate a few of the ways substance abuse can cause serious problems. Marvin, Kathy, Robert, Melissa, Marion, and Eduardo also help demonstrate just how heterogeneous the faces of substance abuse really are. The fact is that counselors in all settings find themselves confronting substance abuse issues every day. Marvin might seek help from a substance abuse specialist, but he would just as likely enter the helping system through contact with a counselor and the community mental health or criminal justice system. Robert or Melissa might come to the attention of a school or family counselor. Kathy might be reached through the health system, but could also be helped effectively by a counselor specializing in work with couples. Marion might be referred to an employee assistance career counselor. Uh, Eduardo was identified as someone in need for, of a methadone treatment by his mental health therapist. Whether an individual enters the network of helpers, however, he or she deserves competent attention. National initiatives designed to improve substance abuse treatment argue that there should be no wrong door to treatment. <sighs> Sorry. <laughs> Effective, effective systems ensure that an individual needing treatment will be identified and assessed and will receive treatment either directly or through appropriate referral no matter where he or she enters the realm of services and substance abuse and mental health services administration 2017. 
The implication of this statement is that all helpers, whether or not they consider themselves addiction specialists, have a responsibility to respond to problems associated with substance abuse. The school counselor who hopes to prevent the negative consequences of adolescent drug use, the family therapist who wonders why a particular family system seems unusually rigid and secretive, the mental health counselor facing a client's ready, steady deterioration, and all these people confront substance abuse issues every day. They can appropriately deal with these issues if they learn to recognize the abuse of alcohol and other drugs and adapt their counseling or referral skills to meet the needs of their clients. The book, oh, the purpose of this book is to help counselors develop the basic knowledge and skills they will need to deal with their clients' substance abuse problems. Some, some counselors will choose to specialize devoting a major portion of their professional careers to substance abuse issues. For them, this text will provide a general framework on which to base further study. Other practitioners will see themselves as generalists, working with the heterogeneous client populations and addressing substance abuse problems as they arise. These counselors will find guidelines in the book for adapting to their current skills and techniques to the special needs of substance-dependent clients. Our intention is not to promote any one theory at the expense of others, but rather to describe the methods that are best supported by current research and, above all, to encourage an individualized approach based on the unique needs of each client. Defining substance abuse. A counselor who wants to carry out an appropriate assessments for clients and collaborate on action plans needs to begin with at least a working definition of substance use. For general counseling purposes, a substance abuse problem is assessed if a client's use of alcohol or other mood-altering drugs has undesired effects on his or her own lives of others or the lives of others. The negative effects of the substance may involve impairment of psychological, physiological, social, or occupational functioning. In terms of our working definition, use of a drug that modifies the moods or behaviors of the user is not necessarily considered a substance abuse unless the user's functioning is negatively effective. We also differentiate between substance abuse and addiction, defining a client's problem as addiction only when physical symptoms of withdrawal or tolerance to the substance are present. Among the psychoactive substances associated with abuse or addiction are alcohol, sedative hyp hypnotics, opioids, amphetamines, cannabis, cocaine, and tobacco. Of all the substances likely to cause problems among clients, alcohol is the most common. Alcohol abuse has major effects on the physical health of drinkers. In addition, it plays a major role in many of society's most pressing concerns, including accidents, violence, and criminal behavior, family problems, and productivity loss. Clearly, a problem of this magnitude affects so many clients in so many ways that no counselor can overlook it. Counselors in virtually any setting can also expect to see a large number of clients affected by drugs other than alcohol. Many people routinely use marijuana, marijuana cocaine, stimulants, sedatives, tranquilizers, 
and millions are addicted to nicotine. Opioid abuse independence is now a national epidemic. As we have said, the mere use of a drug is not automatically problematic. The substance users who need the assistance of counselors are those who have developed life problems or health risks from their drug use. Thus, the counselor should recognize individual differences among substance-using clients to try to address the drug use in the context of the client's life in totality. Defining Modern Substance Abuse Counseling An effective paradigm for substance abuse counseling requires a fresh approach, a new mindset, and, in fact, a new definition. In the past, a substance use counselor might have seen his or her role in terms of a narrow focus on substance use behaviors. Although the interruption of these behaviors generally comes early in the counseling process, today's counselors know that it is their job to view each client not through a virtual microscope, but through a wide-angle lens. Substance abuse counseling should now be defined as a practice that is A, evidence-based, B, respectful and positive towards clients, C, complex, D, collaborative, E, contextual, F, multiculturally competent, G, oriented towards social justice, and H, built on a strong base of professional ethics. Evidence-based practices. One of the major shortcomings of substance abuse treatment in the past was a certain rigidity in the choice of methods, a tendency uh, I can't speak now. A tendency of treatment centers to rely too heavily on their familiar practices at the expense of fresh possibilities. Although a number of options are available in some areas in the United States, Treatment alternatives in many regions are still severely limited, and clients who find themselves unable to fit into mainstream approaches have food choices. Especially in alcoholism facilities, certain practices have become so common that caregivers, managers, community members, and even clients tend to accept these practices without question. Yet these methods are grounded neither in theory nor in behavioral research. Many counselors assume, for instance, that educating clients about alcoholism is a necessary and possibly even a sufficient mechanism for endangering sobriety, yet one would be hard-pressed to find real support for the generalization that the provision of information can be counted on to bring about new desired changes in attitude or behavior. Similarly, confrontational counselor behaviors long thought to be key components of addiction treatment, have not shown evidence of effectiveness. If anything, methods designed to convince clients of their impairment have been associated not only with resistance, but also with a lack of behavior change. In general terms, evidence-based practices are approaches to prevention or treatment that are validated by some form of documented scientific evidence and stand in contrast to approaches that are based on tradition, convention, belief, or anecdotal evidence. When a substance abuse professional is in the process of making a decision about whether to use a particular method, he or she normally takes into account whether the procedures have been developed through a scientific method and have been found to be more effective than the standard treatment. Additionally, any evidence-based practice should carry with it a specific set of procedures that can be dismantled for an accurate replication. 
A focus on evidence-based practices does not imply the existence of a concrete list of treatments that can be applied to every client, which therefore becomes the new treatment as usual. In fact, the focusing on evidence is more likely to be a mindset that allows practitioners to think through their treatment decisions by weighing available scientific information and considering client needs. The very notion of a scientific approach brings with it the assumption that any list of what works is certain to be in a state of constant change as new data becomes available. The key to success for substance abuse counselor is simply to be aware of the advances in the field and to integrate these advances into one's practice. Full-time helping professionals, including counselors, have always found it difficult to keep up with research by regularly pursuing scientific journals. It is reasonable, however, to expect that awareness of current research studies will continue to grow because of internet access. Consider, for example, the enormous benefit of the National Registry of Evidence-Based Programs and Practices. This online searchable registry lists interventions that have gone through an extensive review process. Each listing includes not only descriptive information about the program, but also ratings of outcome research, dissemination, I think I said that right, dissemination materials, and populations studied. Among the general interventions with strong ratings are motivational enhancement therapy, motivational interviewing, relapse prevention therapy, 12-step facilitation, behavioral couples therapy and skills training. Each of these approaches tends to appear in what works list, but this registry includes the backup data and literature reviews that a scientifically oriented counselor would always want to have. A respectful and positive approach. In contrast to the now discredited notion that substance abuse clients are unable to participate in their own treatment planning, current thinking emphasizes that the idea that treatment should be preferred in ways that are respectful, supportive, and encouraging. Counselors have learned that a respectful and supportive approach can bring better results than the aggressive one. In fact, the use of a respectful and positive approach is an evidence-based practice. As Miller and Carol point out, when randomly assigned, counselors' clients often differ widely in outcomes when they're in ostensibly delivering the same manual guide treatment. Counselors who are higher in warmth and accurate empathy have clients who will show greater improvement in drug use and problems. As early as the second session, clients' ratings of their working relationship with a counselor are predictive of treatment outcome. The body of research in supportive motivational interviewing provides even more potent evidence of the power of collaborative relationship. Motivational interviewing is a directive and client-centered counseling style for eliciting behavior change by helping clients explore and resolve ambivalence. The spirit of motivational interviewing arises from the basic idea that the motivation for change comes from within the client and is elicited by the skilled and supportive interviewer who recognizes that the client holds 
the decision-making responsibility for his or her own life. The motivational interviewer knows that the decision to change comes not from the client's basic traits, but from the counselor-client interaction. This seemingly simple intervention can bring out a significant change. Clients tend to enter the counseling process feeling ambivalent about change. The last thing a counselor would want to do is create a situation that endangers defensiveness. Moreover, people dealing with substance abuse concerns frequently begin treatment at a time when their hope for a better life is at a low point. They can benefit from a dose of optimism, a sense of possibility, and a feeling that their lives are worth saving. Think about these examples discussed at the beginning of the chapter. Marvin, for instance, is very much aware of the problems that have dodged him for as long as he can remember. Given his sense of hopelessness, the best possibility of change for him depends on his developing a new ability to visualize success. A counselor who has respectful attitude towards people grappling with addiction recognizes that clients hold the ultimate responsibility for their own recovery. Encouraging clients to accept this challenge is not just humane, it is also empirically supported. People who believe in the possibility of controlling their own lives seem better able to engage in health-enhancing behaviors, including those relating to substance abuse. In fact, people self-efficacy... Uh, their belief in themselves and their ability to tackle their behaviors plays a pivotal role in whether, how, and why someone will try to change maladaptive and disruptive behaviors like excessive drinking or drug use. Thus, clients dealing with any pressing life problem are most likely to succeed in making and maintaining behavior changes if they have posi- positive pers- perspective, <sighs> positive perceptions of their self-efficacy. When they're dealing with substance abuse issues, self-efficacy becomes even more important as a means of preventing relapse. Given the importance of self-efficacy for the maintenance of positive behaviors and the prevention of relapse, the counselor should reinforce each, each client's sense that the control is possible. Treatment should focus on enhancing the client's feelings of personal mastery except through the provision of opportunities to plan for and practice and appropriate coping behaviors. Substance abuse diagnosis, continuum, not dictomy. Treatment providers sometimes oversimplify the assessment of substance abuse problems, creating a dictomy that fails to confront the complexity of the diagnostic process. Such oversimplification is particularly common in dealing with alcohol problems. Some people still assume that they can identify alcoholism as, an, as a unitary disease that, and that once, once this identification has been made, a particular course of treatment can be described. In fact, what is usually called alcoholism is a multivariate dis- syndrome. Drinkers vary in terms of consumption, physical symptoms, patterns of drinking behavior, life consequences of drinking, personality, social environment, gender, culture, and a variety of other factors. Given the differences among individuals, no one treatment plan and no one label could possibly be appropriate for all clients. The difficulty with the dictumous classification of yes or no for addiction 
related concerns lies in its implicit assumption that because we know that a client is an alcoholic or addict, we know how to treat him or her. If we are able to make appropriate treatment decisions, we need to do a great deal more than label a client's dysfunction. The use of the dictumous diagnosis, whether in alcoholism or drug addiction, actually interferes with treatment planning by masking individual differences. This simplistic approach to assessment also lessens the potential effectiveness of treatment by discouraging early interventions in the case of problematic drinking or drug use. And either or diagnosis leads, um, sorry. And either or diagnosis leads inexorably as to generalized diffuse treatment package that at worst may be ineffective and at best may meet the needs of only individuals with serious chronic long-standing substance abuse disorders. And since insistence on a clear diagnosis of alcoholism, for instance, drives away from treatment many people who are not necessarily dependent on alcohol but could benefit from assistance in dealing with life problems associated with incipient alcoholic alcohol abuse. If we wait until people are ready to accept the diagnosis of alcoholism or addiction, we may be missing an opportunity to help them when they are best able to benefit from counseling. Miller and Carroll point out that there is no clear moment when a person becomes dependent or addictive or addicted, and that interventions appropriate to one region on the continuum may be unhelpful or even counterproductive at another level of development. Suppose that instead of conceptualizing substance abuse disorders merely as present or absent, we view drug or alcohol use along a continuum from non-problematic to highly problematic, as shown on figure 1.1. The figure shows from left to right six categories of substance abuse. And I'm just going to skip down real quick. And they say non-use, moderate, non-problematic use, heavy non-problematic use, heavy use, moderate problems, heavy use, serious problems, dependence, life and health problems. Such a continuum does not imply progression. An individual who begins to develop problems does not necessarily move along the continuum from left to right. On the contrary, the various points on the continuum may respect different individuals, some of whom move from less serious to more serious involvement, some who stay at one point for an indefinite length of time, and some who may move back and forth between problematic and non-problematic substance use. Because of the difficulty in predicting the course of substance use for any one individual, counselors need to be as helpful as possible in responding to the client's needs as they're presented at the time of first contact. The notion that substance abuse problems may increase in seriousness over time is understandably difficult for clients with yet minor difficulties to accept. Many treatment providers label the client's hesitancy as denial and wait for the individual of the individual to develop a sufficient number of problems to warrant acceptance of the label alcoholic or addict. More appropriately, counselors should attempt to devise treatment plans and fit the nature and seriousness of the client's current difficulties.
more appropriately, counselors should attempt to devise... Oh, oops, sorry. Read that already. <laughs> Consider, for example, the case of Robert, who was introduced at the beginning of this chapter. It is apparent that Robert could benefit from assisting in addressing the life problems are associated with this drinking. It is much less apparent that Robert's drinking could be determined alcoholic. It is much less apparent... Oh, the counselor's focus should be on helping the student make decisions and plans for getting his life back on track. Insisting on the acceptance of a specific diagnosis might well be damaging to the process. A counselor can explore a client's life situation to get a sense of whether the individual stands on the continuum from non-problematic to severely problematic drug use. It is not possible, however, to determine the use of any objective measure whether an individual should or should not be offered help. The facts that traditional treatment approaches have tended to be appropriate for only those clients clustered at the far right of the continuum means that services have an effect been with, withheld from people exhibiting, exhibiting minor or moderate problems. Where is this cutoff point? which a client should be denying services. Someone with many serious life problems related to drug use clearly needs help, but an individual whose problems only are at the beginning stages may also benefit from assistance of late of the less intensive nature. Thus, an individual who has been arrested for driving under the influence of alcohol deserves a chance to learn how to discriminate his or own his or her own blood alcohol level. A young person developing problems associated with the careless use of substances deserves an opportunity to learn responsible decision-making. A person who has learned to abuse drugs as a way of dealing with grief or stress deserves the services of a counselor who can help in the formation of more appropriate coping methods. These clients need help that is not sullied by the process of labeling or the assumption that progression of their problems is easily predictable. They need to be seen as individuals who can be assisted without being forced to accept diagnoses that they may see as inapplicable. Collaborative treatment planning. Counselors who move away from dictumous diagnosis find themselves increasingly able to provide help tailored to the individual needs of the clients. When we think of the people we serve as complex, multifaceted human beings, we can work in collaboration with our clients to develop change plans that are as unique as the clients themselves. This process depends on the counselor's recognition that no one goal or treatment outcome is likely to be appropriate for every client. The client's substance abuse must be considered in the context of other life problems, although not necessarily in terms of casualty. Substance abuse tends to be associated with a variety of social, psychological, familial, and financial problems. The counselor does not need to determine whether these problems are a cause or a result of substance abuse. Each of a client's major concerns should be addressed as part of the counseling process under the assumption that a favorable outcome involves rehabilitation across several life domains. Only a collaborative assessment process
process that sets individualized goals and takes note of an individual strength as well as deficits can learn to comprehensive treatment. Thus, each client's plan for change should include long-term goals and short-term goals that reflect the individual's commitments and deal with both substance use and other issues. Among the general life areas that might be addressed, depending on the individual's concerns, are resolving or avoiding legal problems, attaining financial stability, attaining stability in family relationships, setting and meeting career goals, improving social skills, improving assertion skills, enhancing physical health and fitness, learning more effective methods for coping with stress, developing more effective problem-solving and decision-making skills, learning relaxation skills, learning to recognize and express feelings, adapting more effectively to work or school, developing social support systems, increasing involvement in recreation and social pursuits, dealing with mental health issues, and increasing self-esteem and self-efficacy. Obviously, not every client needs to set goals in each of these areas. The assessment process should identify issues that can be addressed through individualized treatment with interventions then tailored to specific outcomes desired. The assessment process should also guide the counselor and client towards individualized goal setting with regard to future substance use. One of the goals of substance abuse counseling by its very definition, is a change from problematic level of substance use to a non-problematic level, abstinence or responsible use. Yet even this one generalization is subject to adaptation from client to client. In each individual case, the client and counselor must work together to decide on the most desirable outcome in terms of substance use. This decision is especially complex when the drug of choice is alcohol. A debate has raged for many years over the possibility that people who have concerns about alcohol use might be able to achieve moderation. Yet much of the controversy surrounding the concept of controlled drinking, that is whether a client can learn to moderate or control their drinking, arises from the way the issue is framed. Writers and clinicians concerned about dangers of controlled drinking tend to ask what the goal is for possible for alcoholics. Instead, the question should be what outcomes seem to be most appropriate for what types of clients in what situations. Clearly, there are individuals for whom controlled drinking is an inappropriate objective, just as there are individuals more likely to relapse when they attempt abstinence. People who have long-standing problems with alcohol, who now have many life problems associated with drinking, who show signs of being physically addicted to alcohol, who have been problem, who have health problems that might be exaggerated by alcohol use, or who have been unsuccessful at drinking moderately, are not good candidates for moderation, and should be encouraged to opt for a goal of ab- a goal of abstinence. It is not surprising that these who treat alcoholism tend to be put off by any mention of controlled drinking as an option. Until recently, almost all of the clients who sought help for alcohol problems fit the profile of the person whom abstinence was the only safe goal. Now, however, the client population has become more heterogeneous. As we see younger, less seriously impaired people in treatment, 
we need to consider involving clients more actively in deciding on their own treatment aspirations. Clinicians who are frightened by the concept of controlled drinking tend to believe that although many people would be harmed by a goal of moderation, none would be put at any particular risk for striving risk by striving for abstinence. If drinkers are young and healthy, if they have not shown signs of physical dependence on alcohol, if their problem drinking is of recent onset, if they have little if they have few life problems associated with alcohol use, and if they object to abstinence, they may do best working to moderating their drinking. In every case, a client's commitment to a goal is a major factor in his or her ability to reach it. The key is the key to setting goals is this important area is recognition that differential outcomes are not only possible, but may be preferable to a rigid insistence that each client fit the counselor's preconceived ideal. The discussion by Marlett Larimer and Witkiewicz of harm reduction provides a helpful conceptualization. Harm reduction recognizes abstinence as an ideal outcome, but accepts alternatives that reduce harm. Um, Marlett and at all point out that requiring abstinence as a precondition for receiving help may place an unnecessary barrier in the way of entry into treatment. Instead, they suggest we should meet people on their own terms and thereby encourage small steps toward positive change. The counselor who has worked out a reasonable set of goals with the client can use a number of techniques for reaching these goals. Among the counseling methods frequently used in the substance abuse field are behavioral self-control training, teaching clients the, the techniques they need to change their own behaviors, contingency management, identifying and manipulating environmental contingencies that reward or punish the substance abuse behaviors, relaxation, assertion, and social skills training, couple and family therapy, career counseling, cognitive restructuring, helping clients alter their appraisals of self and environment, assistance with problem solving and decision making, aversive conditioning, coupling substance use with a real or imagined unpleasant experience, stress management training, group counseling, lifestyle and recreational planning, provision of information about the effects of psychoactive drugs, and referral to such self-help organizations as Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. Of course, the counseling process often takes place in the context of an agency that uses pharmacology... Oh my god, I can't speak. Okay, I'm just going to skip that word. Components. Okay, medication-assisted treatment. Thanks for bearing with me, guys. The Sam... SAMHSA Center for Substance Abuse Treatment provides this overview of pharmacological, oh my god, pharmacological, no, I can't say it, I can't say it, I just can't say that word, treatments, okay, let's just hope I don't have to say that a lot, okay, 
Medications used in medication-assisted therapy. A misconception associated with medication-assisted therapy, MAT, is that substitutes one drug for another. Instead, these medications relieve the withdrawal symptoms and physiological and psychological cravings that cause chemical imbalances in the body. MAP programs provide a safe and controlled level of medication to overcome the use of an abused opioid. Research has shown that when provided at the proper dose, medications used in MAP have no adverse effects on a person's intelligence, mental capacity, physical functioning, or employability. Opioid dependency medications. Methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone are used to treat are used to treat opioid dependence and addiction to short-acting opioids such as heroin, morphine, and codeine, as well as semi-synthetic opioids like oxycodone and hydrocodone. People safely take medications used for MAP for months, years, several years, or even a lifetime. Opioid overdose protection medication. FDA-approved naltrexone is an injectable drug used to prevent an opioid overdose. According to the World Health Organization, the use of no... No... Oh, I said that wrong. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. The use of naloxone is essential to a functioning healthcare system. Alcohol use disorder medications. Dis disulfiram. I can pros. I'm not even gonna say these words. They're the most common drugs used to treat alcohol use disorder. None of these drugs provide a cure for the disorder, but they are effective for people who participate on a MAP program. Any combination of methods may be appropriate for a specific client. It would not be effective, however, to use this entire group of interventions as a single package of substance-abusing clients. Addressing problems beyond the narrow band of substance use behaviors is an important strategy, but it can be workable only to the degree that is adapted to match each client's actual needs. Social context. A fundamental attribution error is a common error that skews the ways in which people explain human behaviors. When making a fundamental attribution error, we would explain a behavior by suggesting it as a result of someone's bad genes or behaviors or some internal aspect of the person rather than trying to explain the behavior in the context of an environment such as a heavy drinking peer group. Unfortunately, people in their helping professions are prone to misattribution as anyone else and the tendency to overlook the role of environmental factors permeates many approaches to counseling and therapy. The detriment of their clients, helpers sometimes focus more attention on negative internal characteristics than on the social, cultural, political, and economic factors that affect their clients' lives. Too often, the counseling spotlight stays on the client's diagnosis rather than on their strengths and on their personal vulnerabilities rather than their environments. The rest, the result is that clients feel increasingly powerless. The tendency to view problems 
as internal to the clients is especially prevalent in substance abuse treatment, where addictive behaviors are often viewed as resulting from personal traits that are resistant to change. However, substance use behaviors are powerfully affected by social context. Moose examined four theoretical perspectives that provide explanations of the roles of social context and substance use. Social control theory emphasizes the degree of which strong bonds with family, school, work, religion, and other aspects of traditional social bonds or social society motivate individuals to to engage in responsible behavior and refrain from substance use. In contrast, the absence of these bonds makes substance use more likely. Similarly, behavioral choice theory sees substance use as less likely to occur when the individual's environment provides reinforcements that serve as alternatives to the reinforcing effects of substance use. Social learning theory emphasizes that the modeling effects of drug-related attitudes and behaviors are prevalent in the individual's environment. Stress and coping theory explains that stressors in the environment can lead to substance abuse and the absence of healthier coping skills. What all of these perspectives indicate that individual social contexts from family communities to public arena can increase the risk of substance abuse or protect against it. A counseling process that is built on awareness of social context emphasizes both client empowerment and multidimensional treatments. Empowerment strategies. As important as it is for counselors to recognize the impact of the social environment, it is even more important to their clients to come to understand it. People who fail to see the broader context of their problems often feel bogged down mired in self-blame blame and helpless. Understandings, understanding one's life in a broader context is actually empowering. As Lewis Arnold Housen Toprick point out, counselors who use an empowerment-based approach with their clients should be able to identify strengths and resources of the client and students, identify the social, political, economic, and cultural factors that affect the clients and students, Recognize the signs that indicate an individual's behaviors and concerns reflects responses to systematic or internalized oppression. Help those at an appropriate developmental level identity that the external barriers affects their development. Train students and clients in self-advocacy skills. Help students and clients create self-advocacy plans and assist students and clients in carrying out action plans. Multidimensional treatments. When clients eliminate problematic substance abuse from their lives, they are sometimes surprised when other concerns fail to fade away. Some problems remain either because their ideology was independent of substance abuse or because years of heavy drinking or abuse or drug use have created multiple life problems too serious to be ignored. It is for this reason that counseling must be multidimensional, focusing on specific drug use behaviors, but also seeing them in the larger context of the client's physiological 
or psychological, sorry, psychological, social, and vocational functioning. Counselors who believe in individualized efficacy-enhancing treatments tend to appreciate the importance of a number of factors beyond the individual's specific substance abusing behaviors. They realize that in the long run, clients' recovery depends not on their intrapersonal qualities, but also on the nature of their social environments and on their repertoire of skills for coping with the real world in which sobriety must be maintained. Social, cultural, biological, and psychological factors interact reciprocally in both the etiology and the resolution of substance-related problems. A major implication of this view is that efforts towards prevention and rehabilitation aimed at changing alcohol and drug use may not be maximally effective if they are limited and focus um, the substance use behavior itself to an isolated domain of the individual's lives. Instead, intervention should focus simultaneously on multiple domains. At the beginning of this chapter, we met Marion, whose work setting was characterized by widespread alcohol use. At one time, counselors would have perceived Marion's behaviors, drinking behaviors, to be provoked entirely by internal mechanisms. They might have assumed that it was her alcoholism alone that motivated her drinking and that her statements about the work setting were mere excuses. The notion of recovery... Uh, would have required that she abstain regardless of environmental factors. Now experienced counselors tend to be more cognizant of the idea that behaviors are affected by both internal and external factors. Marion must examine her vulnerability to addiction as well as personal dimensions such as spirituality, physical health, cognitions, behaviors, and attitudes. At the same time, she and her counselor would address environmental factors, asking what skills she would need to cope with the risk to sobriety that are prevalent in her workplace. She might even have to decide whether this job was worth the risk or whether she should consider other career options. The multidimensional nature of recovery has major implications for the counseling process. First, treatment goals need to take into account not just substance use behavior, but also rehabilitation, such as occupational functioning, psychological well-being, and social involvement. Second, levels of functioning in these aspects of life may have strong influences on the individual's ability to maintain healthy new behaviors. The social and physical environments that surround all people hold the potential to support health or to place it at risk, like... Marion, any person trying to make a difficult life change must find ways to avoid some of the stressful situations that there are most dangerous to sobriety and find more ways to cope with others. A multidimensional approach is built on recognition of the very real pressures faced by clients when they return to their familiar social and work environments. Expanding a positive social support systems and building personal resources for health are major challenges and important opportunities for any client. Okay, so that was learning objectives one through five out of ten. And I only have 60 minutes per segment. So I'm going to end this one and then um, pick up on another episode. 
So it'll probably be right after. Yeah, it'll definitely be right after this one. But I just don't want to get cut off. So um, just the next episode right, right after this should be part two. So thanks for listening to part one if you're still here. I know it's a lot of information, um, but it's also important and it's really interesting to me. So I hope this is I hope this has been helpful. Um, yeah. Anyways, thanks for listening to Justice Sobriety, where we talk, share, and spill the tea soberly and anonymously. Normally, I end with the serenity prayer, but I'm not going to do that just for the sake of this is strictly informational. And it's not like a normal podcast episode. So, yeah. All right. See you in the next one. Okay, part two of substance abuse counseling. I know in the last part of the segment, the first segment, I was saying it can only be an hour, but apparently that's just each segment I add to an episode. So we're good on time. All right, so now we're on learning objective six of ten, multiculturalism and diversity. And I'm sorry if it sounds like I'm losing my voice. It just gets scratchy sometimes. So just try to bear with me. I'm doing my best. A a multicultural perspective is central to component practice and substance abuse counseling. The rationale for emphasizing this point of view is based on the increasing diversity of client populations, the importance of context for all clients, the need for fresher perspectives, and the need for flexibility. Diverse client populations. Addiction counselors work with a client population that is becoming more diverse every day. Because their clients are so different, counselors must have many strategies for their repertoires. What works for one client or even one group of clients may not work for another. The importance of context. All clients are affected not just by their own addictions, but by the world around them. A multicultural perspective helps counselors understand how great an impact or our cultural context has on one of us, on all of us. Counseling strategies should take into account the realities of the world that the recovering client will re-enter. One of the realities is the pervasiveness of oppression. Fresh perspectives. The models are most frequently used in addiction treatment where the first developed to meet the needs of homogeneous group of clients. Now that we need new models, innovative techniques, and fresh perspectives, the need for flexibility. Counselors need to be aware that their own cultural backgrounds affect their worldviews. The assumptions we make about the world are not always in tune with the views of others. All people have multiple cultural identities that affect their risk factors for addiction, their responsiveness to specific forms of treatment, and their prospects to recovery. If we listen closely to our clients, we can tailor our work to their specific goals and needs. Until relatively recently, the bulk of information about substance abuse treatment was based on research carried out by white males. Most counselors have now come to accept the fact that their clients may be members of highly diverse groups with widely varying goals, needs, and social pressures. In this milieu, successful practice requires a multicultural competence. 
Multiculturalism should be deeply ingrained in a counselor's knowledge, attitude, and skills, and no counselor consider him or herself competent in counseling of any kind without first becoming multiculturally competent. The multicultural counseling competencies fall into three general areas. The counselor's awareness of his or, own, his or her own assumptions, values, and biases. The counselor's understanding of the worldview of the culturally different client. And the counselor's ability to develop appropriate intervention strategies and techniques. Gaining a multicultural perspective is, in many ways, a life-changing process for counselors, leading them to make changes in deeply held assumptions, to examine both their own worldviews and the cultural biases that are implicit to in mainstream counseling practices. And what? An environment characterized by oppression is one which membership and a particular group places limits on the access of rights, resources, and benefits that are normally available to members of more privileged groups. Oppression of this kind remains ubiquitous in today's world, making it unlikely that any counselor could avoid dealing with the effects of his or her clients. It's working and working with gay, lesbian, bisexual, and trans transgender clients. I can't speak today. I'm sorry. For instance, the counselor should be alert to heterosexism as a stressor and to the reality that members of this population often face an unwelcome environment in health and mental systems. In working with women, counselors should recognize the impact of sexism and take note of the high correlation between addiction and experiences of sexual victimization. They should also note that access to treatment is affected by gender because many treatment facilities overlook women's special health problems, ignore the need for childcare, or fail to deal with the fact that many women are underinsured. Oppression in a counseling context designates the disadvantage and injustice of some people suffer because tyrannical power coheres them, but because of the everyday practices of a society. Oppression in this sense is embedded. Sorry, people were texting me. Um, One second. Okay. Oppression in this sense is embedded in unquestioned norms, habits, and symbols, and the assumptions underlying institutional rules and in the collective consequences of following those rules. Clearly, an effective one-on-one family or group counseling process would depend on the counselor's willingness to address and head-on any issues of racism and other oppressions that have an impact on the client's well-being. The days of forcing the client to focus solely on his or her own internal traits are long gone. If substance abuse clients are subjected to a greater stigma by society as a whole and are subjected to lower standards of health care, the depression is at work and should be recognized as such by counselors. In addition to integrating oppression-related issues into direct client services, the counselor should be knowledgeable about the impact of societal inequality on their client's development. Two notable examples of this inequality have different direct effects that are specific to substance abuse and health, healthcare disparities, and unequal treatment in the criminal justice system.
healthcare disparities. Learning object objective seven. Although disparities in health outcomes, including life expectancy, are widely known to exist, there remains some disagreement about casual factors, with some experts still focusing on the possibility that cross-population differences in individual health behaviors and health-seeking might account for the gaps. The weight of current research, however, seems to indicate that the quality and amount of services provided to the patients do differ across racial and ethnic lines. An article in the Chicago Tribune solidly confirms what health professionals have known for some time. Clear disparities exist between healthcare services received by racial and ethnic minorities and those received by whites. The issue of health disparity cuts across all types of conditions and treatment, and substance abuse is no exception. In fact, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, NIDA, has continued to address disparities in the treatment and outcomes for minority populations. Um, NIDA reports emphasize the fact that the stigma that is generally applied to drug users is actually magnified for African Americans and Hispanics. Racial, ethnic, minority populations are perhaps more adversely affected by the stigma and its effects, leading to misperceptions about drug abuse and addiction in minority communities. For example, the common perception is that minority groups, particularly Blacks and Hispanics, use, more drugs, use drugs more than whites, even though epidemiological data shows little difference in overall use by race or ethnicity. In fact, some instances, minority groups are less likely to use licit or illicit drugs. There are, however, great differences in the consequences of drug use for racial and ethnic minorities, creating a great need for better a great need to better understand the unique prevention, treatment, and health services of the communities. Criminal justice inequalities. The decades-long war on drugs greatly increased the number of people incarcerated in federal or state prisons in the United States. According to the Sentencing Project, sentencing policies brought about the war on drugs resulted in a dramatic growth in inmates convicted of a drug offense. At the federal level, prisoners incarcerated on a drug charge make up more than half of all inmates, while the number of drug offenders in state prisons have increased 13-fold since 1980. Most of these persons are not high-level actors in the drug trade, and most have no prior criminal record for a violent offense. Some changes in public policy are moving into the forefront, and there are increasingly strong voices arguing the concept of a war on drugs should be changed. A renewed emphasis on addressing drug problems through the health system rather than the criminal justice system is sorely needed in light of the impact the war on drugs had on communities of color. According to the Drug Policy Alliance, if we want to solve our nation's drug problems, we need to focus less on obtaining convictions and more on preventing addictions. We should be treating people with, addition, with addictions, not handcuffing them. The United States is home to less than 5% of the world's population, but nearly 25% of its prisoners, in part because of the overly harsh consequences of a drug conviction. Many of the 2.3 million people behind bars and 5 million under criminal justice supervision in this country are being punished for a drug offense. 
If every American who has ever possessed illicit drugs were punished for it, nearly half of the U.S. population would have drug violations on their records. Over 1.6 million people are arrested, prosecuted, and incarcerated, placed under criminal justice supervision, and or deported each year for a drug law violation. Yet, instead of reducing problematic drug use, drug-related disease transmission, or overdose deaths, the drug war has actually done more harm than problematic drug use itself by breaking up families, putting millions of people behind bars, burdening even more people with a lifelong criminal record, worsening the health prospects for people who use drugs, and significantly promising and significantly comprising, compromising public health. The consequences of any drug conviction are lifelong and severe, are not experienced equally. Despite comparable drug use and selling rates across racial groups, African Americans and Latinos are disproportionately punished for drug law violations. Drug violations are an easy solution for police officers pressed for high arrest quotas, resulting in thousands of wrongful arrests that overwhelmingly victimize communities of color. The Drug Policy Assist Alliance is focused on reducing the number of people swept into the criminal justice system or deported for drug law violations while promoting policies that improve individual and public health. We are guided by the principle that no one should be punished for what they put into their own body absent harm to others. Exposing and combating the racism of the drug war is an important part of the DPA's agenda. We work with civil rights and social justice organizations, formerly incarcerated people and other allies uh, to end discriminatory policies and practice that unjustly target and penalize people of color and to advance an equitable health-centered approach to drugs. Statements like this make clear that multicultural perspectives goes beyond the knowledge of varying cultures as as important as they may be to a recognition of the role of criminal justice inequalities in clients' lives. Social justice and advocacy. The impact of oppression and inequality on human behavior and development makes it important that substance abuse counselors see their work in terms of social justice. The social justice counseling paradigm uses advocacy and alcoholism as a means to address inequitable social, political, and economic conditions that impede the academic career and personal social development of individuals, families, and communities. Every human being is powerfully influenced by his or her social context, but clients grappling with substance abuse concerns often have environmental stressors that goes beyond the norm. First, their drug use behaviors come into being the settings of the facilitated experimentation or at the very least fail to provide protection against the development of this health problem. Second, once the problem arose, they became subject to the stigma that society is frequently imposed on drug users. Third, their attempts to obtain help in overcoming the difficulty came against barriers because at this point, the help they need was complex and multifaceted. These difficulties and their immediate environments, their own families, schools, communities, exist in still a larger social, cultural, economic, and political climate. In this broader arena, they might be subject to oppression and they will be affected by public policies that are based on negative views of substance users' lives rather than on positive views of their potential for change. 
because their clients cannot always be successful in navigating an imperfect environment, counselors often find it important to advocate on their client's behalf. A focus on social justice in the counseling setting can manifest through a multiculturally competent lens focused on advocating and fighting for client rights. The American Counseling Association's um, advocacy Com- sorry, advocacy competencies identify three domains in which advocacy might take place. The individual, the school or community, and the larger public arena. At the level of the individual, advocacy can involve working with the client through empowerment efforts or working on behalf of the client by carrying out such efforts as negotiating service systems, helping clients gain access to resources, identifying barriers to clients' well-being, and developing and carrying out action plans for that change. At the school or community level, the counselor might develop alliances with groups that are working for change or lead the way toward needed community change. In the larger public arena, the counselor might focus on his or her expertise to disseminate the information for public consumption. Occasionally, the counselor may become aware that his or her own advocacy efforts are needed on a larger scale. The ACA competencies for this domain include distinguish problems that can be best resolved through social political action, identify appropriate mechanisms and avenues for addressing these problems, seek out and join with potential allies, support existing alliances for change, with allies, prepare convincing data and rationales for change, with allies, lobby legislators and policymakers, maintain open dialogue with communication and clients to ensure that the social political advocacy is consistent with the initial goals. In the larger public arena, challenges for advocacy exist in abundance. A number of political issues call for advocacy efforts by professionals who are knowledgeable about substance use. Many substance use counselors are active in promoting policies that encourage harm reduction efforts, such as needle exchange programs supporting efforts to allow first-time drug offenders to have the option of treatment rather than incarceration, and fighting for the elimination of laws and fairly target minority group members, including differential punishments for the possession of crack or powder cocaine. The future will bring additional environment challenges that will call in the advocacy competencies of substance abuse counselors. Okay, learning objective eight, ethical practice. The ethical practice of substance abuse counseling depends on a an awareness and willingness to abide by appropriate professional codes of ethics and b personal characteristics including a commitment to the process of continual self-exploration ethical codes a person in any of the helping professions is likely to be affiliated with the organization or licensing body that has its own published code of ethics Substance abuse counselors may identify with any of a number of professional specializations, including psychology, social work, or nursing. Many substance abuse counseling practitioners believe to the, belong to the ACA or to the Association for Addiction of Professionals. Virtually all of the profession-specific ethical codes share commonalities and focus 
in attitudes towards clients, and even in language. For example, the ACA and NAADAC both include, with slightly different wording, the following principles in the introductory sections of their codes. Client autonomy, non-maleficence, avoiding harm, beneficence, working for the good of the clients, justice, treating others fairly and equitably, fidelity and veracity, being true to promises and trustworthy in relationships. Each of these principles has clear applicability applicability to real-life practice, and each is open to changing interpretations, especially in light of the new paradigms. Client autonomy. The idea that clients have a right to autonomy is found in virtually all ethical codes of helping professions, yet adherence to the notion that clients deserve the opportunity to participate actively in deciding on the goals and methods of treatment is new to the field of substance abuse. In the past, many practitioners believed that treatment could begin only after clients agreed to accept the treatment provider's definition of the problem at hand. Linton provides a case study in which an experienced counselor insists on what is an what is an effects compliance. When new clients come in, John says that his initial goal is to get them to accept that they are addicts or alcoholics. When clients continue to deny a problem with alcohol and drugs, John confronts their beliefs and values until they accept that they are addicted. John says that clients who never accept that they are addicted usually drop out of treatment. Linson suggests that demands placed by the counselor on his clients is that example may violate the ethical principle of autonomy. The fact that client autonomy is clearly included as a requirement, or at least an aspiration, in professional codes is likely to have a positive impact on the development of the paradigm described throughout this chapter. Non-maleficence. The idea that counselors must avoid doing harm to clients is clearly correct, but is also subject to myriad interpretations. In this section on the counseling relationship, the NADAC Code of Ethics states that preventing harm requires counselors to refrain from coercive methods, including labeling and shaming, and that they try to protect individuals from harm done by others. The ACA Code proscribes imposing personally held values and beliefs under clients. The virtually universal prohibition on inappropriate relationships with the clients is designed to prevent harm as well. Beneficience. Promoting the welfare of clients is at the very heart of substance abuse counseling and all helping professions. Ethical practice requires the well-being of clients be the primary goal of every method, every approach, and every decision that the counselor makes. As Corey at all point out, the best way to maintain a clear, a clear ethical position is to focus on your client's best interest. Justice. Kusher and Keith Spiegel suggest that behavior involves that just behavior involves being fair and equitable and treating others as we would want to be treated under similar, under similar circumstances. This interpretation provides a way to take the general concept of justice and apply it in a readily understandable way. Interestingly, however, Grether and Winter Road 
given gives a golden rule a twist based on the diversity of the client population being served. Agreeing that the golden rule, which asks us to treat others as we would wish them to treat us, is highly appropriate for everyday life, they suggest that a variation of the golden rule would be more appropriate for the professional practice of counseling. We propose that the golden rule of counseling and social work should instead be do unto others as they would have counselors do unto them. <clears throat> the rationale for the change in wording is the reality of the basic mistakenly presume that what would desire for themselves. Oh, I just skipped that whole thing. Oh, I'm so sorry, guys. It's running together. Okay, the rationale for the change in wording is that the reality that basic golden rule when applied to the field of counseling can lead counselors to mistakenly presume that what they would desire for themselves is development and well-being applies to everyone, including people who come from distinct cultures and contextual experiences. Justice and fairness require an empathetic response to the values of the other. Next is fidelity and veracity. Clients have a right to assume that counselors have their best interests in mind. They have the right to assume that counselors can be trusted to give them formal and accurate information in response to such questions as, will my counselor ask for my consent before sharing information about me? What are the limits of confidentiality that are part of the counseling relationship? How careful is my counselor about safely storing data about me? How careful is my counselor about transmitting electric data? My counselor asks my many personal questions as part of assessment of my needs. What is the reason for these questions? Fidelity goes beyond giving honest answers to questions like these. Instead, the concept implies that counselors will provide all of this information to all clients in order to ensure that they have a true understanding of the counseling relationship and what it entails. The counselor's personal commitment to ethics. Substance abuse counselors should be knowledgeable about ethical codes of their organizations and licensing bodies. But knowing the letter of the law and trying to abide by it is only the beginning. A code of ethics by its very nature has amb ambiguity written into it. Its authors can cannot foresee every possible ethical question that might arise over the course of an individual's career. Counselors are regularly put in the situation of having to make difficult decisions based on their interpretations of what is ethical. This process requires that counselors are as honest with themselves as they are with their clients, questioning their own values, commitments, and behaviors as objectively as, pos as they can. Kutcher and Keith Spiegel present the idea that one of the most important but overlooked characteristics of an ethical person is courage. Does not does one avert Okay. Does one avert one's eyes from ethical ma matters because of fear of retaliation? Does one follow unethical orders or does one take principled actions? These with courage have an advantage and that courage itself emboldens us to do what is right. We may ask if it is even possible to be ethical practitioner without the strength to act on moral convictions. Okay, nine of ten. We're almost done, I believe, yes. Okay, counselor roles and settings. 
The ideas discussed in this chapter have in common an emphasis on individualized, multidimensional, and culturally competent practices. Substance abuse counseling that follows these principles will tend to be oriented towards empowering the individual and addressing the impact of the environment. The approach we are suggesting cannot be limited to any one setting or counseling specialization. Providing for each client's special needs requires a number of alternative settings and forms of treatment. Thinking of drug or alcohol use as one aspect of a client's unique constellation of behaviors and characteristics has two major implications for a counselor's roles. First, generalist counselors must be expected to assess substance abuse issues routinely, just as they would be expected to identify any other behaviors or health concerns affecting their client's well-being. Second, addiction specialists should recognize their responsibility for dealing with psychological, social, and vocational issues that might interact with drug use rather than assuming that they can limit the scope of their assessments and interventions to drinking or drug-taking behaviors alone. Counselors' work settings have substantial effects on the issues they face and the day-to-day roles they must perform. Next, we will um, examine generalized settings in the community and a variety of specialized settings in which counselors may have to deal with substance abuse problems. General community settings. Counselors in healthcare venues, community agencies, and educational settings play a major role in recognizing and confronting substance abuse among members of the general client population. Appropriate identification and referral of clients with alcohol or drug problems can make the difference between timely treatment for the real problem and hours wasted on therapy that fails to address a primary concern. People with substance use disorders can be helped through a process that goes from screening and diagnosis through the active treatment. It is important that health care settings of all types include screening and brief interventions. Thus, counselors working in such diverse arenas as healthcare, social services, education, and criminal justice have a major role to play, not only in referring clients for specialized treatment, but also providing brief services themselves. Vast numbers of seriously impaired clients still need specialized treatments. Often, in the case of both alcohol problems and other drug use, the primary decisions about clients' treatments needs are made not in specialized substance abuse facilities, but in community agencies dealing with the general client population. Counselors who see themselves as generalists rather than substance abuse specialists bear the bulk of responsibility both for making initial diagnosis and for helping their clients choose the most appropriate treatment strategies. Specialized Substance Abuse Settings Substance abuse counselors are employed in a variety of settings, each of which meet distinct client needs and raise different concerns regarding the quality of care offered. The most prevalent organizations that focus on substance abuse issues are detoxification centers, inpatient rehabilitation programs, therapeutic communities, methadone maintenance programs, outpatient counseling agencies, and employee assistance programs. Detoxification centers. Detoxification and short-term treatment designed to oversee the client's safe withdrawal from the abuse substance. Whether the abuse substance is alcohol or another drug, the initial period of abstinence may bring a high degree of discomfort 
and may dis- may constitute, constitute a med- medical emergency. Detoxification is a physiological phenomenon through which the individual's body becomes free of the abused substance. It also has a psychological and social implications that call for a counselor's best efforts. In the context of a detoxification center, the counselor's important role involves working with the client to develop an appropriate plan for treatment, linking the client to community and agency resources, monitoring the client's progress and referring for medical assistance as needed, providing personal and emotional support to the client, encouraging the client and his or her family to the crisis of detoxification as an opportunity for change, and assessing the client's needs and potential for further treatment. Perhaps the most important question for counselors working in detoxification centers is which clients should be detoxified in which type of facility. Detoxification centers may be medical with close supervision provided by medically trained personnel frequently within a hospital. In these centers, physicians may offer medications to enhance the client's safety and comfort. In contrast, non-medical or social detoxification centers provide counseling, support, and supervision outside of a hospital. Medical personnel will be on call in such facilities, but many social detoxification centers eschew the use of medications and depend instead on non-pharmacological withdrawal. Clients have at least three choices for detoxification. Remaining at home, entering a non-medical detoxification center, or seeking treatment in a medical setting. They need to take a number of factors into account in their decision-making process, including the stability of their home situation and the personal and social support available to them. Especially important is the question of the seriousness of their physical condition and the likelihood that withdrawal will involve major health risk. Many substance-abusing clients are placed in inpatient detoxification facilities before being provided with additional treatment. Only those clients who demonstrate physical dependence on a drug should need supervised medical detoxification. Even these clients, if medically stable, can sometimes be treated effectively in a non-medical setting. The principle that treatment should be as unobtrusive as possible is important when we consider the role of the detoxification facility and the general continuum of care. Individual care is an important use for counselors who work in this milieu. Detoxification can never be more than a first step in treatment and recovery. The counselor working with the clients at this stage needs to conduct complete assessments and develop individual treatment plans that include both long- and short-term goals. Residential Rehabilitation Programs Like detoxification facilities, rehabilitation programs may be housed either in hospitals or in non-medical settings. The number of treatment alternatives is increasing as providers experiment with partial hospitalization, providing a full rehabilitation program in the daytime but allowing patients to go home at night, and a variable leans to stay. In general, rehabilitation programs tend to have a great deal in common. Whether the facility is run by a general hospital, a freestanding medical treatment unit, or a social agency, the primary emphasis tends to be on psychological 
rather than physiological factors and on education rather than medicine. The general purpose of a rehabilitation program is to help individuals gain understanding of their problems and to prepare them for long-term recovery. Ideally, the time spent in rehabilitation settings should allow clients the opportunity to develop personal recovery goals, learn the skills needed to prevent a relapse, and to prepare for the resocialization into the community, as well as to plan and rehearse an abstinent lifestyle. The goal of such programs include providing clients with a social learning frame for understanding their addictive behaviors, helping clients assess their problems, teaching them skills for maintaining abstinence, helping them learn to reinforce their abstinence, and teaching them about relapse management. Unfortunately, some rehabilitation programs lack this kind of attention to individual assessment, skill development, and relapse prevention. Too often, and patients are forced to take part in predetermined and non-differentiated activities that may not have any relationship to their unique personal needs. Such programs are problematic when they focus almost exclusively on didactic methods, assuming that if the clients are educated about their disease, rehabilitation will follow. Clients need more than to be sold on the idea of abstinence. They also need help in developing the skills and resources that can increase their control over their lives. They need to know not just why abstinence is desirable, but how it can be attained. Another vital issue is in in patient settings involves with the question of its appropriateness for individual clients. In general, outpatient or partial hospital treatment is preferable to hospitalization because of the opportunities clients have to try out their learning in a real-life environment. Clients who have been isolated for weeks from work, family, and social ties may not be accurate in their assessments of their own progress and in their expectations regarding their coping skills. If clients are socially stable, physically healthy, and reasonably motivated, a hospital stay should be avoided. If individuals need inpatient treatment, Every effort should be made to ease their transition back into the community at large judiciously and thoughtfully as possible. Therapeutic Communities Unlike the shorter inpatient rehabilitation program, which has its roots in alcoholism treatment, the therapeutic community has become most prevalent and an intervention for drug abusers, particularly those addicted to opiates. The earliest therapeutic communities were staffed by recovering users, but professional counselors have been increasingly involved over the years. Mutual help remains a core value. As therapeutic communities have evolved, members have been expected to remain in these isolated residential environments for a year or more. This model depends on its efficacy, on a high degree of commitment on the part of each individual to the community as a whole. Alcorn outlines the essential components of therapeutic communities. One, community separateness. Two, community environment. Three, community activities. Four, a staff as community members. Five, peers as role models. Six, a structured day. Seven, stages of the program and phases of treatment. Eight, work as therapy and education. 9. Instruction and repetition of therapeutic community concepts. 10. Peer encounter groups. 11. Awareness training. 12. Emotional growing training. 13. Planned duration of treatment. 
14, continuous of recovery after therapeutic community program completion. Methadone maintenance programs. The use of methadone as a treatment for heroin addiction was pioneered by Dole and Nyswander in New York in the 1960s. Their goal in using the synthetic opiate was to focus on rehabilitation rather than on abstinence and to help substance abusers live productive treatment approach Oh, productive, if not drug-free lives. Methadone maintenance has grown an important as treatment approach in research in recent decades because it is a way to separate the client from the dangers and instability of a lifestyle devoted to obtaining and using an illegal drug. Methadone is intended to reduce other opiate cravings so the client may focus on recovery. The treatment requires that the client come to a clinic regularly to receive methadone and have a urine check to ensure other drugs are not being used. Methadone is seen as a positive alternative to heroin because it is legal. It is administered um sorry. It is administered orally rather than by injection. It does not produce the level of euphoria of heroin and it blocks both the effects and the withdrawal symptoms of the abused opiates. Thus it allows thus its use allows for a level of physical, social, and emotional stability that might not be possible if heroin were continued. This stability is enhanced by the by the fact that methadone is longer acting than heroin, allowing all doses to be given under clinical observation. Over the years questions have arisen not so much about the use of methadone methadone, but about the context within it is used. Originally, many agencies provided methadone maintenance in a vacuum with no other treatment deemed necessary. Now they recognize the need to place this method in the context of a treatment plan, including counseling and other efforts at rehabilitation. They also recognize that more attention must be paid to the question of whether methadone maintenance is a short-term solution or a long-term pen. Outpatient counseling agencies. Substance abuse counseling is offered to outpatients in a number of settings, running the gamut for comprehensive community mental health centers to the offices of private practitioners from highly intensive nightly group meetings to bi-weekly individual sessions and from brief interventions to long-term therapy. Outpatient counseling varies among counselors and agencies but its positive aspects seem fairly consistent. First, outpatient counseling allows for a high degree of individualization, and patient counselors always attempt to individualize treatment plans to the degree possible. In reality, the constraints of a group-oriented treatment and the need for daily structure often make true differentiation impractical. Outpatient counseling, in contrast, is based entirely on the notion that each intervention can be planned within the unique needs of the specific client in mind. Second, outpatient counseling encourages the development of treatment plans on both long and short-term goals. Again, it is sometimes difficult for counselors and inpatients to think far into the future. Distant goals are seen as ideals because the typical rehabilitation program can meet only immediate objectives both counselors and clients tend to focus on the concrete, readily achievable ends. The outpatient counselor can work with the clients one issue at a time until all their needs have been addressed. 
Short-term objectives may be given priority, but the counselor and client can evaluate each achievement as one step in the direction of the ultimate goal. Third, outpatient counseling gives the client an opportunity to try out new treatment, try out new behaviors in ordinary environments. Much of the potency of substance abuse treatment comes from the client, the client's opportunity to re-examine habitual behaviors, to study the environmental cues that tend to affect drinking or drug use, and to develop a broader repertoire of coping behaviors. Outpatient counseling enhances this process by giving the individual a chance to try new behaviors and attitudes, knowing that the result of each experiment can be discussed at the next counseling session. Furthermore, outpatient counseling allows for easy alteration of the treatment plan in response to any unforeseen difficulties the client may encounter. Although outpatient therapy is the preferred modality, it is not appropriate for all clients. The most suitable candidate for an outpatient intervention is one who is able to function independently on a day-to-day basis, who has sources of social support for sober or straight lifestyle, who is medically stable, and who has the ability and motivation to abstain from substance use until a new lifestyle has been established. Employee Assistant Programs One of the reasons that substance abuse problems are being identified earlier than ever is the growth of drug and alcohol programs in business and industry. Counseling programs designed for employees in their work settings are known as employee assistant programs, and they deal not just with substance abuse, but with a variety of issues of mental and physical health. The employee assistant concept has roots in the workplace programs of the 1940s, and alcohol and drug issues remain central among the concerns of employee assistance counselors, if for no other reason that the connection between substance abuse and deteriorating work standards is clear. Counselors who work in an EAP are expected to be knowledgeable and skilled in assessing and dealing with substance abuse problems. Their primary role involves assessment and referral, not the formation of long-term counseling relationships. In the context of an EAP, clients with major health problems whether physical or physiological, or physical, whether physical or psychological, <sighs> I'm getting tired. Physical or psychological <laughs> are linked with treatment resources outside of the employing organization. EAP counselors are not expected to provide treatment or long-term therapy. When the council employees Their goal is to give temporary support and assistance so that clients can gain or regain self-responsibility. Employee assistance professionals engage in counseling in the true sense of the word, helping individuals gain skills and mobilize resources so they can manage problem situations and achieve the highest possible degree of mastery over their environments. The help provided by the employee assistance counselor is short-term, pragmatic, and oriented toward problem-solving. An employee assistance program is not a treatment modality in itself. Rather, it is a method for helping work organizations to resolve problems relating to productivity. An EAP counselor is both a human resource consultant to the organization and a service provider to the employee. The most difficult challenge faced by substance abuse counselors in business and industry involves their ability to wear those two hats to their clinical skills while working 
to ensure the organization accepts the employee assistant concept as a viable way of solving difficulties. Potential value conflicts are avoided if the program is seen as an organizationally based system that includes the following components. Written policy statements that demonstrate the organization's commitment to referral and treatment for its employees. Training for supervisors that encourage referrals to the EAP. Information for employees that clarifies the nature, purpose, and confidentiality of services provided. Provision of confidential counseling, assessment, and referral that is easily accessible. Educational and preventative efforts focused on the organization as a whole. Employee assistant pra- assistance practitioners, like all effective substance abuse counselors, recognize the importance of adapting their methods of the needs of individuals they serve. Okay, this is the last learning objective. It's much shorter than I realized. So I'll just read it really quickly and go over the key points in the summary and we'll be done. Okay, learning objective, objective 10, principles of effective treatment. Based on scientific research, the following principles should form the basis of any effective treatment program. Addiction is a complex but treatable disease that affects the brain function and behavior. No single treatment is right for everyone. People need quick access to treatment. Effective treatment addresses all of the patient's needs, not just their drug use. Staying in treatment long enough is critical. Treatment doesn't need to be voluntary to be effective. Counseling and other behavioral therapies are commonly used forms of treatment. Medications are often part of treatment, especially when combined with behavioral therapies. Treatment plans must be reviewed often and modified to fit the patient's changing needs. Treatments must be monitored continuously. And treatment programs should test patients for HIV, AIDS, hepatitis B and C, tuberculosis, and other infectious diseases. So key points. Drug addiction can be treated, but it's not simple. Addiction treatment must help the person stop using drugs, stay drug-free, and be productive in the family at work and in society. Successful treatment has several steps. Detoxification, behavioral counseling, medication for opioid, tobacco, or alcohol treatment, evaluation and treatment for co-occurring mental health issues such as depression and anxiety, long-term follow-up to prevent relapse. Medications can be used to manage withdrawal symptoms, prevent relapse, and treat co-occurring conditions. Behavioral therapies help patients modify their attitudes and behaviors related to drug use, increase healthy life skills, and persist with other forms of treatment such as medication. People within the criminal justice system may need additional treatment services to treat drug use disorders effectively. All right, last part. In summary, counselors can consider a client's problem as related to substance abuse if the continuous use of alcohol or another drug affects his or her social or occupational functioning. In dealing with substance abuse issues, counselors must take into account the individual differences among their clients. Substance use counseling should be defined as practice that is evidence-based, respectful, and positive towards clients, complex, collaborative, contextual, multiculturally competent, orientated towards, orientated towards social justice, and 
built on a strong base of professional ethics. These guides lead in the direction of treatment that is individualized rather than diffuse and that focus on other areas of life functioning beyond the specific drinking or drug using behaviors. Among the contexts in which such counselor, counseling might take place are generally our general community settings, detoxification centers, inpatient rehabilitation programs, therapeutic communities, methadone maintenance programs, outpatient counseling agencies, and employee assistant programs. Whether practitioners view themselves as counseling generalist or substance abuse specialist, they can adapt to the methods described in this text to the special needs of their clients. So that was chapter one. That was a lot of information, but we survived. If you're still here, kudos to you. Um, all right, well, we're done. And I thought I'd have a moment of silence for those suffering in and out of the rooms. And I'm going to as well do this one any part because I do after every episode. So if this isn't your thing, just skip it. It's fine. So God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. All right. Goodbye, guys. And um, you'll hear from me on the next episode. Okay. Bye. Have a great day.